Hark, the sound of footsteps approaching behind me. Methinks that the marauders have gotten over their first fright and returned to finish the job. Doubtless they will seek to slay Thor as well. But they will learn that evil walks in the same shadows as the good. Come, bold assassins! You shall find the son of Odin waiting for you in the dark! I am Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 11 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold, we are back with some really strange stories. Yeah, this arc was uh, kind of a mixed bag, but enjoyable. But there were a few things that I was like, really? What? What? Why? I mean, come on, we have a Judge Dread analog, we have time travel, we have an X-Men crossover, and we have Sigurd Jarlson hanging out with an adorable family. There's so much good stuff. Totally. And then there's the super creepy Thug Thatcher stuff as well. Uh, yes, that is. It almost turns into a, a horror story. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. I think we had an announcement, right? Yes, we did. If you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, or look at our blog, and if you don't do any of those things, you really should... We have a contest that we are running right now. IDW Publishing was kind enough to give us a copy of Walter Simonson's latest artist edition, which is The Return of Beta Ray Bill. And these things are beautiful. I haven't seen the new one yet, but I have the first artist edition that IDW did of the initial Beta Ray Bill story and the adventure in hell. And it's glorious. It's like the full-size pages. It's really high-quality scans from Walter Simonson's original art, because I guess he kept all his original art. So... It's pretty great. Um, This isn't us doing an advertisement because we don't do that so much as us talking about how freaking awesome this thing is. Yeah, these are like the uncolored original artist pages. So you see all the revisions and like the whiteout and the things. And it's like looking at the original full-sized, you know, 11 by 17 pages. And you, the listener can win this thing. Um, we are doing a contest, like you mentioned, Elizabeth, and we were trying to think of what would be uh, a good uh, cause to benefit, and we decided on the Hero Initiative. Now, the Hero Initiative raises funds to help comic book creators in need. As many of you have probably already heard, you know, it's not like comic book creators usually have pensions, and, you know, the comics industry sometimes doesn't pay people as well as, as we would like. So they come in and they help them find medical care if they need, or find new work if they need need and it's a really worthy cause so if you make a donation of any size to the hero initiative by july 29th 2017 and forward your confirmation receipt via email to the lightning in the storm at gmail.com we are going to pick one u.s resident winner at random on the 30th which is coincidentally the day our last uh, episode will debut yeah so good cause for a good thing you should totally do it All of that said, uh, we've been thinking more about Thor than we usually do, which I suppose is saying something. We actually got together with a couple friends and watched both Thor movies again, because it had been a while for both of us. Uh, What, like less than a week ago, right? Yes, we did. And this was the first time I had seen either movie since they were in the theaters. And of course, this is the first time I've watched them since I've read Walter Simonson's Thor. 
Yeah, and it was so cool seeing all the little references, like hearing Sif mention the Battle of Harrokin and seeing uh, Algrim the Strong hanging out with Malekith the Accursed, even if they were both very different in Thor the Dark World. It was really nice to really see how they revamped Jane Foster from kind of a, a hapless, lovesick nurse into a strong, hapless, lovesick scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's Thor these days in the comics, and she's freaking badass. But yeah, I thought the movies held up pretty well, actually. I mean, in the visuals of the Dark World were, were freaking great. Yeah, I thought they were both, I mean, I enjoyed them both in the theater, so I was kind of wondering how I would react to them because generally, if I'm really invested in a character, I'm much harder on the movies. Mm-hmm. See, every X-Men movie ever. <laughs> but I really did love, you know, Chris Hemsworth's Thor is very different than Walter Simonson's Thor. You know, he's younger, he's less tested, he's, you know, more arrogant. But He's just so charming and all the characters were so charming. And the only real disappointment I had was that all of the Asgardians were dressed in the same outfit and hat. And I'm sure it's so that special effects were more streamlined, but... I wanted to see some more red Asgardian hats. Yeah, I mean, the golden armor is fine and dandy, but come on, have some variation. Show some individuality in your choice of headgear, Asgardians. But I got a lot more joy out of seeing characters like the Warriors 3 and Sif being brought to life now that I feel like, you know, we're friends. Exactly. So that was fun. Although, man, I wish Thor Ragnarok would come out, like, right freaking now. Yeah, we could incorporate it into part of our podcast. (sighs) Well, maybe we can do, like, a far belated episode 14. Who knows? Kyle's going to lock the door. He won't let us back in at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, we have some Thor to tell you about today, which you probably expected because it's a Thor podcast. And you're very smart. (laughs) Yes. So this is interesting, the issues we have now. We're doing Thor number 371 to 374, and it's kind of two two two-part stories. Yeah, it starts with kind of a Judge Dredd analog, and it ends with the Mutant Massacre. Right, and we'll get uh, more into what the Mutant Massacre is when we're talking about those issues. But as far as Judge Dredd, if you're not familiar, Judge Dredd first premiered in a comic called 2000 AD in England way back in the day. He's sort of a tough-as-nails, no-nonsense, law enforcement dude from this, like, future dystopian society. Uh, there have been a couple movies. Uh, I haven't seen either, but I'm told the second is way better than the first. I am the law. Oh, that was definitely the first there. Well, I mean, the words are both, but God, Stallone, what a strange choice. <laughs> yeah, I could see how he thought, you know, he was such a, a big, tough guy that he could play it. But as I recall, and I never saw the movie, that a big part of the problem was because he's Sylvester Stallone, he didn't want to wear the helmet the whole time. And the helmet is kind of his defining characteristic. It's kind of like if one of the actors playing Batman decided, I don't want to wear the cowl. It messes up my face. <laughs> messes up my hair. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just imagining Bruce Wayne having hair that matches his cowl just like Wolverine does. That would actually be an improvement. I'm surprised that nobody has done this thus far. All right, Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer and George Clooney <laughs> and Adam West. Well, not Adam West anymore. Aww. But anyway, all of you get on it. <laughs> but this Judge Dredd analog hasn't shown up yet, so let's talk about what happens beforehand. Right, so now we'll talk about Thor 371 and 372. And in 371, I enjoyed that the inker was listed as Albert Blevinson, which was not a name I was familiar with, but apparently that is Al Williamson and Brett Blevins working together. I can only assume that they hideously flesh-melded into one great, horrific inker to do this issue. I don't know. I wasn't there. I think it's more of like a firestorm sort of situation, you know, where they like clap hands and they become one and then they bicker endlessly. Yeah. Or maybe a Thor and Donald Blake or Thor and Eric Masterson situation where they can transform from one to the other. Yeah. 
does. Does one of them think he's a better inker than the other? Maybe one's really good at like fight scenes and the other is more good at the, the quiet moments. I'm going to assume that's the case. I always like Brett Levinson in New Mutants more for the quiet moments, so he's probably the one for that. Perfect. So yes, they are inking, of course, Salbusema, who is still our main artist now that Walter Simonson is just doing the writing. Yeah, and Elizabeth, you and I were talking before the episode about sort of the different styles of Simonson and Busema in terms of pencils, and you were saying they almost seemed like they were from different eras, right? Yeah, like I really loved Sal Busema's art when he first started. I really thought he was a good choice because he's so good at the sword and sorcery sort of elements of Thor. He's such a great pick for the cosmic elements of the series. But I realized when we were on Midgard, something wasn't feeling quite right. Something was kind of falling flat. I realized that when Walter Simonson did scenes on Midgard, he really embraced the 80s and had such style. Whereas Sal Busema's artwork is really more 60s looking. Like at one point we see a character named Ruby uh, going to visit someone in prison and she's literally wearing a pillbox hat. Like if you told me this art was from the 60s, I would absolutely believe you. So I feel like while he's really strong on the cosmic space Vikings side, his Midgard tales are a little less visually pleasing. I can definitely see that. Yeah, I think Simonson uh, more gracefully moved from one setting to the other. But Busema still does some amazing stuff, and he does some amazing stuff on Midgard, and we'll definitely get to that. Definitely. So this arc opens with Balder finally being coronated, now that the real Balder, not the Malekith imposter, is here. And this is really kind of a beautiful, serene panel. It's a full-page panel, just almost silent, with the diadem being lowered onto his head and a beautiful pink background that goes with his armor, and it just looks very regal and, and serene. And Balder himself also looks regal and serene, and his words echo that. My friends, Balder the Brave is not deserving of the honor you have bestowed upon him. Always I shall strive to be worthy of the golden scepter of Odin. Go in peace. And not only is his crown, you know, a very simple rune circlet, but he eschews Odin's grand throne in favor of a smaller one, saying, you know, that throne belongs to Odin and he could come back. So he's not going to take it, which is really gracious. And Thor feels good about this. Like any doubts he had about Baldur the Brave taking over the throne of Asgard instead of he himself taking it, they're gone. Baldur is clearly a just and appropriate ruler now that he's gotten the wild oats of going to a floating castle and having happy times with three troll ladies out of his system. And uh, it, it's nice. It's nice to have that sort of plot line resolved in a way where the characters can be comforted that all is right in the world and we the readers can as well. That sort of frees us up to think about other things. And he even tells Thor that if he ever wants the throne, you know, he just has to ask. But of course, he knows Thor won't because he enjoys adventuring too much. And the Warriors 3 have a lot to say about this. Yeah, they immediately begin kind of gently ribbing Thor and Fandral says, Nay, Balder, methinks in truth that Thor hath grown a beard so he may retire in quiet anonymity as an orchid grower. And Volstagg adds, Surely, Fandral, Thor but seeks to emulate the glory of Volstagg's whiskers. And we don't see that much of the friendship between Thor and the Warriors 3 in this run, but when we do see it, like, it's clear that they've been buds and have been joking around with each other for, you know, mortal lifetimes in a row. Yeah, on Asgard, Thor is a god among men, but he is surrounded by people who are more his equals, people who can rib him, which I think is really nice, like, especially with Odin gone, 
you see that this is his family. And Beta Ray Bill, who's also there, you know, is shaking Thor's hand and is saying goodbye because he's about to return to his own people. And this actually is the last time that Thor and Beta Ray Bill are going to be around each other in Simonson's run. Their glorious fraternal bond, it's not gone, but it's the last that Simonson will tell us about it. Now, don't worry, Thor and Beta Ray Bill are going to team up, like, way more over the history of the Marvel Universe. I mean, they just did so in the Unworthy Thor miniseries, and it was awesome. But still, I'm going to miss Simonson's take on that bond. He just writes it so beautifully. It makes sense because he originated it, you know, like Beta Ray Bill really is his creation and he developed it in such a great and kind of real authentic way that, yeah, it's too bad. You can see for storyline purposes why Bill is no longer part of the series, but I do miss that aspect of this book. Now, speaking of characters Thor is close to, the Lady Sif and Thor speak before Thor heads back to Midgard. As you may remember, they left things in a sort of unresolved state. I mean, Thor, while he was brainwashed by Lorelai, had struck the Lady Sif. She was really upset with him and also upset with him for not being as present as she was hoping when she came back to Asgard to be with him. Sif had gone away with Bill and came back and really came to the realization that she wanted to be with Thor before he struck her. And now she's finally forgiven him, but they haven't actually set their relationship in stone. And Thor says... Lady Sif, rather would I die a thousand deaths than face thee now. But bravery in battle is no bravery at all if a man cannot speak to a maid when the time comes. My own heart has lacked courage, Thor. I have been a poor excuse for a warrior maiden. Perhaps Thor is a poor excuse for a lover, and here I am going away. We must speak now with our hearts. But whatever words their hearts would speak are private, for our story turns elsewhere. So I kind of like that. I like that... This conversation between Thor and Sif is so intimate that even we, the readers, don't get to see it. It kind of reminds me of how Thor and Beta Ray Bill's relationship develops largely off-panel. But Elizabeth, you were saying that you weren't as much a fan of that, right? Eh, I want to know what happens. I feel like we had to see all the fights and the back and forth and the interior monologues before this, and then they don't show us the good stuff. It's like when you have a friend who's always, like, venting about their problems with their boyfriend, and then when things are good, all of a sudden they won't tell you anything about it. You're just like... Come on, you, you you brought me into this. At least, you know, tell me how things worked out. <laughs> you need some resolution. You need some release here. Well, it just seems strange that Sif opted not to go back with Bill because she wanted to be with Thor. And now Thor is leaving. It, why doesn't she leave with Bill? Why is she staying? Like, I want to know these things. <laughs> I mean, I get the impression that part of what Sif was returning to was not just Thor, but Asgard itself. That as much as she enjoyed uh, surfing the spaceways, well, not surfing, that's a different guy, hanging out in the spaceways with Vader bill that asgard's just a part of her blood it's part of her heart but you're right we we don't find out that's left all to our imagination to our assumption yeah i think mainly i'm frustrated because i feel like they won't give us any resolution because that wouldn't be compelling storytelling wise for thor to be in a happy relationship with a girlfriend you know but the kind of the teases and the angst it it kind of wears a little thin after a while (laughs) that's fair well thankfully we have something to distract us from our soap opera right here which is a Shrekel War Room in New York City because in comes Justice Peace on his hover cycle. 
And he's like a patriotically colored Judge Dredd. There's like a traffic light on the front of his bike, which is this overbuilt, armored, you know, it looks kind of like a, a cross between a Dalek and like Christopher Pike's like weird robot wheelchair on Star Trek. <laughs> it totally is. You're right. <laughs> he's got this huge helmet and it's covering one of his eyes and he just looks like some sort of sci-fi police officer gone horribly wrong. And this was years before Cable. (laughs) Yes. He should have had more pouches if it was uh, Cable era. Right. Uh, But yes, it's very clear what his deal is. He's a cop and he doesn't believe in lawbreaking, like any lawbreaking, because he sees some jaywalkers and freaking shoots them. Here's instant social adjustment, scum. Let justice be done. And against their will, the jaywalkers turn back to the sidewalk because apparently Justice Peace has shot them with DNA implants that will prevent them from ever jaywalking again. I mean, I'm a big government liberal, but this seems to be taking things substantially too far. Yes, this is a governmental overreach. And plus, what if they needed to like jaywalk to like get out of the way of a car accident or save a child in the future? Like... This seems like a permanent solution to a very minor issue. Come on, Justice Peace. The world exists in shades of gray, not in the red, blue, and silver that you are. He immediately finds a dumbfounded newspaper vendor and demands the date. And the vendor tells him that it's 1980 whenever this came out. He is quite displeased by this. Credit. The time flux has set me to the outer statistical limit of the past. I only have a few hours left. So we've talked about how Simonson's Thor almost is a genre pastiche, that it goes from Norse mythology to Western European fantasy to horror to science fiction to whatever, and having this, like, terminatory, back to the future time travel story is such a fun place to take the book. It is super fun, especially when Thor appears with a kerwam saying, Jaywalking may be a misdemeanor, but it does not merit an armed rebuke. And they have a huge fight with Justice Peace, you know, calling him basically a a scum-sucking vigilante. But he's in a hurry, so he temporarily restrains Thor with this huge, like, shackle around his whole body and escapes. Thor, thankfully, is able to spin his hammer to teleport out of the shackles and then to step through a portal, like, right behind where they were, which almost seems like we're taking the character himself in a more science fiction-y direction. But you can do that with Thor, because... Mjolnir's kind of like Superman, in the sense that both have basically whatever powers the story demands, and that was especially true of Mjolnir back in the Silver Age, and I love how much of that Simonson's bringing back here. Yeah, it's definitely referenced in this story arc, but I wonder about them leaving this giant futuristic body shackle on the ground. Like, will this create some sort of Terminator-type future, or at least some really weird bondage gear? Man, I feel like if cross-time artifacts in the Marvel Universe caused problems, the universe would have ended a long time ago. (laughs) I think the citizens of New York are just sort of used to it at this point. They're like, eh, stuff from the future, whatevs, best just to keep walking to work. Yeah, maybe somebody's squirreling it aside for some sort of museum, you know, but yeah, nobody really cares. I'm pretty sure it just factors into Kang getting even more powerful and having even more alternate selves throughout the time stream. What a jerk. Freaking Kang the Conqueror. (laughs) So we find ourselves in Chicago, where Thug Thatcher, a former foe of Thor's, has come. He's looked up his ex-Mall Ruby and is essentially holding her and her young boys hostage as he plots to kill Thor from her home. 
Yeah, and Ruby doesn't remember anything about Thug because Thor, in his infinite patronizing wisdom, erased Ruby's memory way back in the 60s when he fought Thug Thatcher after Thug Thatcher was put back into jail. It's not so much that Thug doesn't remember that this is the case as he just doesn't care. Yeah, he realizes that she has no idea who he is, but he does not care. He's made himself at home, he's watching TV with a gun in his hand, and he demands that Ruby deliver a package for him uh, to the prison while he babysits her sons. And so, against her better judgment but to protect her children, Ruby goes to the prison to visit her brother, and while she does, she leaves the package that Thug has given her under the visitation counter, and then it changes hands prison montage style until eventually it gets to a guy named Brad Wolf, wearing some very interesting and complicated manacles. And it's some sort of a nose filter, and a helicopter shows up and fills the prison with gas, but Wolf has this thing on his nose, although not his mouth, and he continues to talk through this, so he is not hit by the gas, and he is able to escape on the helicopter. It kind of reminds me of that scene from one of the old Superman movies. Yes, with Lex Luthor and his little sidekick. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Now, Brad Wolf might be familiar to you if you had read old pre-Simonson Thor. Brad Wolf was a villain called the Zaniac, who has a great freaking name, who's basically a serial killer who can conjure these sort of telekinetic knives out of nothing, and he tends to murder a lot of women who he calls pretty pretties, much like the Black Queen in Barbarella, Queen of the Galaxy. But is he indeed a zany maniac? I mean, if you find a horrifying sexist murder zany, then I guess so. (laughs) All right, that doesn't really work. (laughs) (laughs) But from the Marvel database, which Miles looked up, confused by Thor's long hair, which seemed to mark him as a pretty pretty, deserving of the zaniac's knives of love, and Thor's masculine strength, which deserved only the brute strength of hate, the zaniac ultimately unleashed a series of radioactive knives at Thor, which his hammer reflected back into Zaniac, subduing him. Yeah, so Zaniac isn't just a serial killer supervillain, he's also an illustration of gender assumptions, which is actually kind of fascinating. I mean, people don't really talk a lot about the fact that Thor had long hair in a time that dudes really weren't supposed to have long hair, but it was kind of a thing, and it was nice that it was addressed. Even if it was by a misogynistic supernatural serial killer. Sure. Well, next, Brad Wolf and Kellen, who was the helicopter pilot, escape back to Ruby's house. Where Thug has decided he's just going to hang out there. He's not going to leave. He's going to live with Ruby forever. But Ruby and the kids, they have to always stay in the bedrooms. And Ruby shouldn't be so formal. She should just call him Thug, after all. They used to be together. And it's kind of horrifying seeing Thug just be so familiar but also so controlling to this woman who seriously doesn't know who he is we see her obeying because she doesn't want to die she doesn't want her kids to die but as she faces away from thug toward the panel we see tears running down her face silently it's really sad yeah it's a really horrible thing to read you know to to imagine that happening to you and there's really no way out for ruby right now and it's it it just makes you hate Thug Thatcher and just think he is even more despicable than your usual villain. And speaking of Thug being despicable, this is where he reveals his plan to We the Reader. He's had Zaniac broken out of prison so that he can send Zaniac after Jane Foster, Thor's ex-girlfriend, one of the most important people in Thor's life, and certainly somebody he remembers from his first confrontation with Thor. But Ruby has decided not to go down without a fight, and she comes back in. Thug I've decided I can't wait any longer. And Wolf says, A pretty, a pretty pretty. 
You have what I crave, and what the Zaniac craves most is blood. And he throws one of his psychic knives at her, killing her instantly, which causes Kellen, remember the helicopter pilot, to instantly turn and shoot him, which, yay, good for you, Kellen, but you're still kind of a scumbag, too. So everything has completely gone to hell. I mean, Thatcher didn't intend for Ruby to die. He just intended to, you know, control her horribly abusively for the rest of her life, I guess. And he certainly didn't intend Zaniac to die because Zaniac was going to be his weapon of revenge against Thor. And he's taken aback, saying, Hey, I'm sorry, Ruby. I didn't think anything like this would happen. I'm sorry about your kids. Yeah, it seems really bizarre that he didn't think that he could bring a crazed serial killer of women into this woman's house and nothing bad would happen. I mean, my take on it is that he's a dude from the 60s. He has these gender roles in his head, this incredible, like, intense patriarchy where he just figures that if a man tells a woman to do something, the woman will just obey because that's just the way things work. He didn't see any individuality in Ruby. He just saw her as a woman and therefore almost his tool, his property. So when she didn't obey that stereotype, his whole plan fell apart and unfortunately she died. Well, and also I'm sure he's basing this on their prior relationship, but because Ruby's memories have been altered and because a lot of time has passed, she's obviously gotten married and had kids, she's not that same woman anymore. Yeah, so here we find Thug Thatcher over the body of his ex-girlfriend. We see Zaniac on the ground dead, Kellen not knowing what to do, and then with a kathump, 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 shrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
Until a few moments ago, Thug Thatcher was an ex-con with a thirst for vengeance. But he forgot the Fifth Commandment, and his forfeit was his life. Now something screams with a primal fury, unmatched by the raging elements. And all that is left of Thug is a thirst for death! Zaniac, that's right, is reborn as he howls, Jane Foster must die! So I feel like we should talk a little bit about who Zaniac is, because I knew he was an old Thor villain, but I knew practically nothing about him. Yeah, you did a lot of research on him before this episode, right? Well, a little bit, and what I found out was that Brad Wolf, the guy we saw before, he was an actor, and he was playing this historical serial killer named Zaniac in a movie, but he kept getting way too into it, and while he was filming one of the Zaniac films, he was hit by, I don't know, some kind of radiation. That stuff was everywhere back in the Silver Age, apparently, and he ended up thinking he was the Zaniac and gaining that ability to conjure those kind of, I want to say psychic knives, but not like the Psylocke kind, different kinds. And so he went around killing the pretty pretties like all of the movies had him doing. So what you're saying, he's a method actor that went way too far, much like Daniel Day-Lewis or Jared Leto. Exactly. And with the help of radiation, his going way too far, you know, made him very murdery. So his original origin didn't say anything about the creepy, creepy, gross maggot rat things inside of him? Uh, It did not. And we'll find out more about that. This is a retcon. This is retroactive continuity, but I like the way this is handled. Oh, yeah. It's creepy in the extreme, and it's fascinating. But Zaniac is now reborn, and his first order of business is to find Kellen and demand that he fly Zaniac to Jane Foster. Meanwhile, Justice Peace, you know, the other plot line that hasn't seemed to have anything to do with this one, yeah, he arrives at Ruby's house and finds an emptied-out Brad Wolf and a murdered Ruby and curses Thor for slowing him down and making him arrive here too late. And then Thor arrives because, you know, Mjolnir can, like, trace energy, supposedly, and he demands to know what's going on. Did Justice Peace kill these people? Justice Peace responds in the only way he knows how to, which is emphatically. Vigilante scum! Justice Peace only punishes the guilty. Your interference has robbed me of my lawful prey and condemned a world to destruction. The sentence is death. You may be judge, jury, and executioner in some far realm, but in this land, tis the hammer of Thor that strikes in the name of justice. So Justice Peace remote control fires a rocket from his hop cycle at Thor, but Thor destroys it and then looms over Justice Peace, demanding that he talk or Thor will break him into pieces. Thor is super badass in this fight. I really like it. And Justice Peace does pause for a moment and uses his weird extendo eye from his helmet as a kind of lie detector and asks Thor to identify himself, which Thor does. Justice Peace also mentions the Hammurabi Code of Genetic Law, which is a cool little reference. Hammurabi is the historical figure from, I want to say like Mesopotamia or Sumeria or something like that, who kind of created the first legal code in the world that was defined, from what I recall from middle school history class. But a Hammurabi Code of Genetic Law? Uh, again, I think maybe the law has gone a little too far in Justice Peace's future. Yeah, we were talking about how it reminded us both of the Minority Report and Civil War II, kind of like, you know, destiny and perhaps you're destined to be a killer or a jaywalker. And uh, their methods of dealing with that seem problematic. Well, regardless, Justice Peace determines that Thor is 99.99% probably telling the truth about being an Avenger and an overall good guy. So he's OK in Justice Peace's book. And he says he only had 24 hours to kill Zaniac or Bedlam will break loose and he only has like an hour left. 
yeah, this is sort of a reverse Days of Future Past. Justice Peace has gone back in time to make sure that someone dies instead of preventing someone from dying. Now that Justice Peace trusts Thor, he tells him his story. He's from the future and his beat is Brooklynopolis. Which I guess is a Brooklyn that's basically turned into a giant megacity. Again, shades of Judge Dredd here with Megacity 1. I like to think that in the future, uh, Marvel and DC have merged, so it's Brooklyn and Metropolis. Oh man, if Marvel and DC have merged, does that mean that it's that old amalgam stuff coming back to haunt us? Like instead of having Batman and Wolverine, we have Dark Claw. <laughs> yes, and Storm as Wonder Woman. That was my favorite part. That that, that was really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> But in this future, during World War VII, Zaniac killed the mayor of Brooklynopolis, which triggered a nuclear war. And while Zaniac was struck down, they discovered he was just a shell. The creatures inside him are apparently immortal, and one of them always finds another host. And so the Time Variance Authority, Justice Peace's organization, they're basically time cops, but not like, you know, time cop. That's a different thing. This would be only better with the addition of Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, come on. I was thinking Jack Harkness from Doctor Who and Torchwood. Oh, well, that's cool too, I guess. Maybe both. Jack Harkness could seduce Jean-Claude Van Damme. It would be great. (gasps) I would pay good money to see that. Even present-day Jean-Claude Van Damme. You saw the commercial, right, with him doing the splits between the two semi-trucks? Yeah, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm pretty sure it's already on Tumblr somewhere. (laughs) But anyway, they have traced Zaniac back through the centuries, connecting him to countless serial killers who prey on women, including Jack the Ripper. I love how Jack the Ripper is always the go-to when you want to have a really badass serial killer. I remember there was this one episode of Babylon 5 where he ends up getting brought in to, like, interrogate someone. It's so over-the-top and unnecessary and somehow works, which... That's sort of J. Michael Straczynski's main skill, making things that shouldn't work, work. Like, I believe that J. Michael Straczynski was once a producer on Murder, She Wrote, you know, when Jessica Fletcher moved from Cabot Cove to New York. That worked pretty well. Oh, JMS, what haven't you done? He also wrote some Thorn. It was really good. (laughs) But they got a fix on Zaniac here in the 1980s, and they sent Justice Peace back. And again, he has 24 hours to kill him before he has to go back to the future. So, uh, having taken all of this in, Thor realizes suddenly, hey, he knows Ruby, he remembers her back from, you know, the 60s when he erased her memory and put her boyfriend in prison, and he immediately makes the logical leap that therefore Thug Thatcher must be the new host of Zaniac and must want to kill Jane Foster. Now, on the one hand, this seems like quite a leap to make when lives are hanging in the balance. But on the other hand, we didn't really want to read about Thor like coming to this decision over like an issue or two. So good job, Thor. I mean, if Agnar can reconstruct an entire flashback from looking at some footprints like dialogue and all, then I'm pretty sure Thor can figure this out just from seeing a dead lady that he hasn't seen in like 20 years. Also, as an aside, now that we keep saying justice, peace all the time, I keep expecting someone to get married. (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if we really have any asgardian weddings we just have a coronation that they try to have happen a couple times that's true well obviously balder and carnilla are never going to get married oh their relationship is sad and doomed but anyway thor and justice peace are then interrupted by ruby's sons mick and kevin who ask if thor is ruby's new boyfriend thor says no he's not but that really they just need to get back to sleep and he puts them into an enchanted sleep using some more Mjolnir magic or maybe that thing that the strangers could do from Dark City. Sleep now. And into bed they go, slumbering peacefully in their house with a hollowed out serial killer shell and their dead mom on the floor. 
Exactly, because Thor and Justice Peace take off. And this seems like a very questionable decision that Thor makes. I mean, they only have an hour left to save the future. An hour, Elizabeth. CPS is not going to take this into account. I guess not that Thor is their legal guardian, although his actions later make it seem like he thinks he is. Yeah, well, regardless, you know, Mick and Kevin, um, their life is now terrible, but they're asleep, so maybe that's for the best. And Thor and Justice Peace rush off to save Jane Foster, kill Zaniac, hopefully save the future as well. And we see a pregnant Jane and her husband, Keith, who is also a doctor and who looks a lot like Donald Blake. They are settling in for the night when there is a knock at the door. And this is interesting because we haven't seen Jane Foster in this entire run of Thor. And she's such a significant character, especially in the Thor that comes before Simonson's run. And of course, the Thor that comes much after is starring her. But just seeing her here as a civilian who's basically getting ready to give birth. She's going to be a mom. She's all about her family. She's like washing dishes and making dinner. It's very strange. It's just so different than the Jane that I've been familiar with over the years. And you mentioned that Keith was a major character in pre-Simonson Thor as well, right? He was Dr. Donald Blake's doctor friend. Yeah, and in fact, he was the one that came to Thor when Jane vanished, and it turned out Jane's spirit, even though they thought it was merged with the Lady Sif, was actually in some rune staff in another dimension. It was a whole complicated thing, and I think it's probably for the best that Simonson just doesn't worry about going into that right now, because it's not relevant. Meanwhile, Justice Peace and Thor are racing to their house. And Justice Peace asks about Jane. So, this woman was a former girlfriend? Once, Jane was my life. But when Thor and Justice Peace arrive, they find Jane dead in Keith's arms, and Thor goes into a full-on Superman the movie rage before collapsing in grief. No! 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 No. And this is so affecting, you know, as someone who hasn't read a lot of the earlier Thor, and as you said, we haven't seen Jane Foster once this run, but they do such an effective job of showing Thor's affection and true love for Jane Foster in a way that we haven't seen him talk about it or express it with any other woman in this run. Like, of course, Lorelai was enchanted and Sif has its own baggage, but it's really like, Jane was my life, and, and that is it. Yeah, we just have a few short words before seeing Thor just smash trees and smash holes in the ground and fly up into the thunderstorm he creates in the sky before crashing into the earth. Like, that level of emotion Salbusama captures so, so well. And I also want to give some credit to the letterer here, who I believe was uh, John Workman, for that last small no. It's just the word no in all lowercase letters in a tiny font in a big, empty speech bubble. And we've seen this technique before, but it, it, it just works well to show the overwhelm of Thor, to show just how lost he is, how vast his feelings are, and how small his ability to display or even understand those feelings is. But he quickly comes up with a plan. He will charge Justice Peace's hopsicle with Mjolnir, and they will go back in time and kill Zaniac before he's reborn in Thug Thatcher. Because once upon a time, Mjolnir could, in fact, travel through time. And Thor figures, hey, maybe that ability is still just a little bit in there. I can recharge this guy's time machine that's out of juice. We can make it happen. It is such like a Hail Mary. I can't believe this is actually going to work gambit, but it does work. And in a science fiction story like this, in a story where Thor's emotions are the guiding force behind doing all of these impossible acts, I kind of buy it. That's narratively appropriate, even if it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. 
Indeed. And they do travel back a couple of hours and return to Ruby's house where they see Thug and Kellen running away from the creatures. But Thor and Justice Peace, using their lightning and their various future weapons, kill every single one of the creatures. The Zaniac is gone. And fortunately, or I guess unfortunately, Thug still dies of a heart attack from fear. That's entirely reasonable and also consistent with the old creepy eerie comics. There were a lot of fear-based heart attacks back then. Yep, he kind of got his just desserts, but at the same time... When Thor realizes he's dead, what he does is take his body and leave him on a park bench with a newspaper over his face. That is going to be one traumatized jogger the next morning that finds this dude. Yeah, that seems like such a questionable decision. As we were saying, it's not like they have anything left to do. They've destroyed Zaniac, and we've seen Thor has a great relationship with the police. Why wouldn't he just call them up and be like, hey, there's a dead body here, as well as Ruby's and, and Wolf's bodies as well? So that's not only going to be a traumatized jogger in the morning, but a very confused set of police investigators. This totally seems like a Law & Order episode being set up. Oh man, I would love to see a Law & Order style show set in a superhero universe. Well, you directed me to those Thors. What was it called? The Thor one that's like Law & Order? Oh yeah, it's just called Thors. It was one of the Secret Wars alternate universe books, and it was a police force of different versions of Thor investigating supernatural crime, and it was so good! That was so good. Kudos to you for the recommendation. Kudos to Jason Aaron for writing it. But in any case, they leave before they can run into their past selves, much like Back to the Future 2. Justice Peace goes back to the future, and Thor returns to gaze upon Jane. And this reminds me of a different Superman movie. This reminds me of Superman Returns, where Superman watches Lois Lane and her new surprisingly awesome boyfriend, played by the same guy that played Cyclops. In Superman Returns, it's kind of creepy. Now, I'll stand up for that movie, but I will agree that scene was creepy. Here, though, it it just seems nice. He just briefly looks at them being happy and then sort of smiles and turns away. He doesn't even say, hey, I totally saved you. He doesn't uh, even linger and watch them creepily. He just wants to know that things are going to be fine with this person he cares so much about, and they are. And so he moves on satisfied, and it's just really sweet and selfless. Yeah, the panel of Thor's face, it's just the most genuine emotion Thor has ever expressed for any woman in this run. And it's it's very sweet, but it's very mature. It's a nice bit of subtlety, really, having Thor's one great love be a character that only appears so indirectly in Simonson's entire run. I like that, and I like that Simonson doesn't feel compelled to take it any further. He showed us what he needs to show us, and now we move on. Yeah, at first I was wondering if this was going to lead anywhere, but of course, like, ethically, Thor can't exactly steal a pregnant woman from her husband, you know, and, and killing off Keith would be kind of hokey as well. So it's it's just a, a bittersweet moment that kind of shows you Thor's vulnerable side, which I always appreciate. And speaking of bittersweet, hey, Mick and Kevin are... Still at home with, you know, their dead mom. And Thor takes them and returns to Asgard, where Volstag offers to adopt them because, of course, he is the literal best. Volstag totally is, and we'll come back to that. But also in Asgard, a few other things are going on. First, we see Beta Ray Bill, who stands before the Warriors 3 and Sif to say goodbye. Bill and Sif have their own bittersweet words. Lady Sif, I... I have no words left. And Sif replies, You do not need them, Bill. We have said so much to each other already. But mine are the powers of space and time. You shall never escape me, no matter how far you go in all the wild universe. 
And that's the last time Bill and Sif are going to see each other for quite a while. I mean, they'll see each other again. There's a run of Journey into Mystery where the two of them are the main characters, but that's the end of their relationship as described by Walter Simonson and the end of Bill's appearance in this book under Simonson. And Bill says one final goodbye and Vortex is off back to his people. Meanwhile, in the throne room of Asgard, Munin, one of the Ravens of Odin, the one that was not killed by Surtur, shows up in front of Baldur with a single black feather. And that's all Baldur needs to see. He is off to the desert. I love how Baldur's first order of business as king is to bring a bird back from the dead. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of his jam. Asgard's fine and dandy, but but birds, dude. <laughs> so he rides out into the desert with Munin and the feather, seeking the fates, and says... Hear me, tis Baldur of the White Ring who calls. I seek an audience. Grant me this boon for the sake of the token I wear. Which is the white thread of his fate from his previous encounter. And suddenly, of course, a giant sand creature appears, but Baldur stands his ground and the creature quickly transforms into Word, one of the Sisters of Fate. This isn't Baldur's first fate-based rodeo. Heck, I'm surprised that Baldur didn't immediately lose like 50 pounds. I mean, isn't this the classic Asgardian weight loss program? Going to the desert, battle a creature. One of a few, yeah. But Weird grants Baldur's favor and gives him a vial of water from the Well of Life that the three fates watch over. The fates are notoriously fickle, but we cannot refuse the unselfish request of Baldur the Shining, who wears the white token. But beware, my brave. Word may one day ask that the favor be returned. And Baldur immediately pours the water of life on Hugin's feather, and Hugin is reborn. Where once there was a feather, now there is a raven that lives again, despite having been, you know, searched pretty thoroughly. <laughs> yes, and you were mentioning how the water of life reminded you of, of course, Dungeons and Dragons. It totally does, because like in D&D, you just need a part of the dead body of the person you're trying to resurrect for a resurrection spell to work. And so it was one of those things where the mechanics kind of get in the way of the flavor because a common strategy if one of your party members died is you cut off their finger you bring it with you and once you get to a cleric with high level spells they use that finger to resurrect your bud but does that mean you can make clones i mean what if you cut off all five fingers can you make five copies of your friend oh geez it's like D characters are freaking planaria they're flatworms is this how uh, madrox the multiple man got to start Maybe. I've never read the Fantastic Four <laughs> annual that he first appears in. But in any case, word has disappeared and Baldur, Munin, and Hugin return to Asgard. And that's a nice little bit of narrative cleanup before Simonson's run ends. I mean, it was important and epic that one of Odin's freaking ravens was killed by Surtur, but Surtur as a threat is long gone, so it's nice to have kind of the mystical order of Asgard to a degree restored. I always appreciate it when a writer, you know, ties things up before they leave, and I wonder if that means that Walter Simonson knew he was leaving at this point. I'm not sure, but he's just starting another plot line because in hell itself, Hela, goddess of death, is sulking with the dead around her. Come closer, you ancient cadavers, and stand before your mistress. I shall draw the magic from your very bones, and it shall be my present to Thor. He will regret that he ever set foot in hell. 
and she sends a bolt of pure necrotic energy that she absorbs from all the skeletons around her through the cosmos directly at Thor. And I gotta say, the skeletons that she's hanging out with, like, they're all dressed in tatters and rags. Okay, I mean, they're dead, their clothes aren't doing so hot. But they're still wearing these completely intact, elaborate, and varied warrior helmets with wings and horns and stuff. I respect that. Like, life is fleeting, but good haberdashery? is immortal. Hey, Asgardians have priorities, and hats are, like, at least number two. And we will see what's up with that blast of necrotic energy in just a moment, because we're going to move on to Thor number 373. Now, in the recognitions of merit from last episode, when I was talking about Thor's beard, I mentioned this cover. This was Marvel's 25th anniversary when this issue came out, and so they had a border of superheroes all around each cover that month with a close-up portrait of one of the main characters, and Walter Simonson's portrait of bearded Thor here is freaking awesome. Yeah, and his face is partially in shadow, which makes him look like he only has one eye, much like Odin. It's kind of cool. I'm not sure if that's deliberate, but I'm going to assume it is. I'm going to give Walter Simonson the benefit of the doubt. And the awesomeness continues inside as the opening splash of Thor flying through space away from Asgard is amazing. Oh, it's so good. Like, I want this on black velvet. I want black light to make this glow in neon colors. Like, it's glorious, glorious Asgardian space. Simonson did that well. Buscema also is wonderful at it. Absolutely. But suddenly, a, for once, silent beam passes through Thor, making him temporarily weak with age. But... Was it just his imagination? I'm sure it was nothing. I'm sure it had nothing to do with what Hela just did. Thor doesn't worry too much about it because he's got other priorities. He heads to Midgard, asterisk Earth, and decides that now that he's got a minute to breathe, he's going to try using Mjolnir to teleport to Muspelheim, the realm of fire that Odin and Surtur fell into at the end of the Surt War. No, none of his buddies are here to stop him from doing so, to tell him it's a bad idea to open those borders up again. So he gives it a shot, he whirls Mjolnir and vanishes. But he almost immediately reappears because the way is barred. And I've got to say, I'm kind of surprised that more than a year later, Thor is still struggling with his grief for Odin and still trying to find answers. But it makes perfect sense in like real life. Like this is a surprisingly great portrait of grief for a superhero comic. And that having failed, Thor's really not sure what to do. This was one of his last great goals. Now he's just a random Asgardian god on Midgard. He doesn't really have any plans from here. And so he revisits the only place he has left, which is his apartment as Sigurd Jarlson, his human alter ego, which is basically a bear room with a bear mattress. Yeah, he never really had a chance to be Sigurd Jarlson more than briefly. Like, he used that alter ego to be a construction worker for, like, a hot minute, but then he was brainwashed by Lorelai, and that sort of did its own thing. And it's it's sad. It's just such a sad shell of an attempt at a life. What I think is sad is that he was apparently sleeping on a mattress with no sheets, which is disgusting. It reminds me of a roommate I had Gosh, 15 years ago, I was living in a house that came furnished, and this guy, who was a friend of my boyfriend's at the time, and he seemed like a pretty decent fellow, until I realized that he was sleeping on a bare mattress. And this guy worked outside. He did, like, construction or something. And as I would go by his room, you know, just walking through the hallways, I noticed after a while that there was, like, a dark spot bought in the middle of his mattress from him sleeping on it and oh it grossed me out so bad oh i i don't feel good about that i, I like to think that sigurd was at least you know diligent about showering before bed or at least in the morning or something i don't know maybe it was just bare because he was in the middle of doing laundry when cert war happened 
Oh man. You know, you never really hear about these kind of things. Like, uh, maybe maybe there's a Spider-Man comic that explores what happens when you get involved in a supervillain battle and then you come back to your laundry that you left in the wash for too long and it smells kind of funky and you have to run the wash again. I think what we should do is kind of retcon that Daryl, the sidekick from the Thor shorts that you can find online, was actually Sigurd Jarlson's roommate. You know, maybe he was busy doing laundry at the time. Oh, man. Yeah, I bet Daryl eyes got suckered into doing all of the chores because Thor was just too busy with other stuff all the time. And Daryl would just roll his eyes whenever Lorelai came around. What was he going to do? Thor wasn't going to listen to him. Maybe he would like sneak sips of the golden mead, you know, so maybe he was enthralled to Lorelai as well. Oh, that that just makes it even sadder. But on his tour of Touchstones, Sigurd next goes to the old construction site he worked at and sees Jerry Sapristi, his old boss. And Jerry recognizes him happily. I mean, Sigurd has a beard now. He looks a little different, but clearly he's the same dude who's as big as any two other dudes with a ponytail. Thor greets him and notes that not much progress has been made on this site. And Jerry says he's surprised that the insurance companies are even covering the site at this point because it's been destroyed multiple times. Right. It got destroyed when Thor fought Fafnir back in the day. It got destroyed again when the Power Pack fought Curse on the exact same site in their own comic. But anyway, Jerry sees that Thor didn't really come there to talk shop. He's sad. And he says, Come on, Sigurd, spill it. Well, actually, my father passed away recently. I I guess... It's tough to get left alone, is that it? You got any other family? Nobody nearby. What we both noted here is that Thor is so human here... You know, when he first came back to Midgard in this issue, I was thinking back to when he came back previously, uh, right before uh, Frog Thor. And it seems like when Thor comes back to Midgard, he goes into a slump, like he's depressed. He feels a lack of human connection to the point where it kind of makes me wonder, why does Thor keep coming back? You know, we see him in Asgard with his kind of chosen family and all that, but he something is drawing him back to Midgard. And I don't think that it's just that he's a whiner. Something about Midgard lets Thor access his emotions. Being among humans, he can be more human too. Yeah, he just seems more straightforward, and you see that in the language as well. It's not nearly as as flowery or grandiose as it usually is when any god talks. He just sounds like a guy, and he sounds really genuine. I can see the appeal of playing as a mortal, of acting as a mortal, in part being able to feel as a mortal, to have that immediacy and that intensity of one's emotions, to not have this grand operatic scale to everything you do, but to just get to be a person and to grieve and to be disappointed and to be lonely. Well, and we saw Sif kind of come to that same realization when she fell in love with Bill, saying that she realized by being around mortals how out of touch she was with her emotions. So there's something about that with Thor that he is really attracted to. And also, I can't help but wonder if seeing Jane Foster didn't also kind of trigger this existential grief, because again, he's reminded of his former life as Donald Blake, which he did have friends and colleagues and a life, and that is closed off to him now, too. And Jerry knows exactly what to do. He invites Thor home for dinner, and he will not take no for an answer. So Jerry takes him to his neighborhood in Brooklyn, saying, Boutiques instead of Woolworths. Cuisine instead of coffee shops. Getting too rich for my blood. They must all be nuts. 
oh, middle-aged, surly New Yorker stereotype with a heart of gold. I love you so much. It's seriously one of my favorite archetypes. I don't know why. It just is. I like to think that Jerry Sapristi, you know, was still living there when, like, Heath Ledger was moving to Brooklyn and making it even hotter, and he's just like, eh, he's not so good. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry loves complaining, but he does it so charmingly. Yes. I just hope he owned his home in Brooklyn, because now he's, like, a millionaire. So he brings Thor into his apartment and introduces Thor, or rather Sigurd, to everyone. He introduces Thor to his wife Tina, his kids Ernesto, Pietro, Giovanni, Maria, Rosa, and Gabriella. It is an adorable large family. But Tina is aghast. She didn't have time to clean. She wasn't expecting someone to come to dinner. But Jerry points out that Sigurd is alone. And by the way, he isn't married. Oh, you never mind what I said, Sigurd. We'd be happy to have you for dinner. I clobber Jerry later. And don't worry, we have plenty of food. Oh, gruff middle-aged New Yorker lady, you're also so great. Everything about this family is wonderful. When I think back to Walter Simonson's run, especially when it's been a while since I've read it, you know, there are certain touchstones I come back to. I mean, of course, there's Thor and Bill in space, there's the Executioner's Last Stand, there's the battle with the Midgard Serpent that we'll see a little bit later in the run— but there's also this. It's just so wonderful seeing Sigurd Jarlson so vulnerable and alone and human and relatable, just being taken in for the evening by this wonderful, loving, welcoming family. Indeed. And Tina goes back to make dinner, but she comes back into the living room when she hears screams. But it's Thor tossing a gleeful young Ernesto from hand to hand in the air. He's like the best babysitter ever. Right, and like at dinner, Ernesto's eating all the food he would normally hate because Sigurd is also eating all that food. And Sigurd then helps Gabriella with the dishes, who asks him if he's maybe got a younger brother. And he even ends up staying the night with the Sapristis at the Sapristis' own insistence. Like, it's just... You get the impression Thor really doesn't want to impose. He feels a little sheepish about even being this vulnerable in front of everybody. But they're just so open. They make it so clear that they're overjoyed to have someone as kind and polite and decent as Sigurd be part of their lives, even temporarily. As for me, I wonder how the heck they have an extra room with all of those children, but I like to think that they were like, you, go sleep with your brother for the night. <laughs> Probably, and there was a little bit of complaining, but ultimately it was nice, and the two kids bonded, having some conversation about just who this mysterious guy really was, and everything was great because the Sapristis are just goddamn wonderful. Yeah, and next day, Thor looks to repay his hosts by taking the kids to the park, and he's also promised to tell them a story. But before that, Ernesto, who's riding on Thor's shoulders, adorably, asks if Thor is still sad that his father's gone. Like, he's such a good kid. I mean, he wants to hear the story, but he also just wants to make sure that Sigurd's okay. And Thor says, Maybe so. I guess I still have hope, but I don't know what to do. It's like a story without an end. He's really boiling it down to the basics, but also he could be talking about an ongoing comic book series, too. <laughs> he could indeed. <laughs> but I like this. I like that he doesn't bother mentioning, oh, and also my dad was like the king of the gods and has been around for millennia. That's not relevant. What's relevant is that Thor, Sigurd, is a dude that lost his father and now he feels kind of adrift in the sea of life. Like, that's why mythology works so well. Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Norse mythology, the kinds of mythologies where the divine figures are basically just human beings, just people writ large, because the struggles they have when you break it down are the same as the struggles we have. We can understand what it's like to lose a loved one. We can understand what it's like when one of the touchstones of your life is suddenly gone and you don't know who you are. We know what it's like to find those unexpected connections who are just willing to welcome you back into the world as you start to reconstruct your entire identity. Like, 
this is why I love mythology. This is why I love comics. And this is why I love this run. Norse gods, they're just like us. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Thor's promised story is from a long, long time ago where an arrogant Thor demanded that an old ferryman take him across a lake and being kind of an entitled dick about it. And the ferryman refuses, mocking Thor and making him walk the long way around the entire lake. And when Thor gets home, Odin himself reveals, yeah, that ferryman was him. And Thor is pondering this and his take now is that Odin was trying to teach Thor that we all must walk alone sometimes. He's trying to ensure that Thor can be self-sufficient. But before Thor can move on to further analysis or another story, suddenly, frogs! It's Puddlegulp and Bug-Eye from the Frog Thor story arc, and they are riveting to Thor urgently. You know, at first the kids think that Thor is putting them on, but Thor is like, what's this? Where? We must go! And he tells the kids that he has to leave immediately. I'm, I'm sort of an undercover policeman. Who talks to frogs? Uh, yes, well, there are many kinds of policemen. You see... Don't worry, Thor. Your secret's safe with us. What? So yeah, these kids are smarter than 99.9% .9 of most comic book characters, and they have immediately figured out that Sigurd is Thor. I mean, their dad, Jerry, thought Sigurd was probably some kind of superhero. He had figured maybe Captain America, maybe Spider-Man. But, I mean, come on. Look at that ponytail. <laughs> look at those shoulders. I mean, come on. Who else could he be? Right? But can I just say how incredibly pleased I am to have freaking Puddle Gulp come back? Like, the first time I read this, I, I was not expecting that. I was just overjoyed that the Frog Thor arc was going to be not just mentioned again, but integral to what happens next. Yeah, to me, that's just the mark of really good storytelling. I don't know if this was the plan back when they first did the Frog Thor story arc, but that it feeds directly into this and in such an organic way is just pleasing. And we'll get to what Puddle Gulp and Bug Eye told Thor in a little bit. But for now, he's not going to be able to walk the kids home. So since they already know who he is, he asks them to gather together so he can teleport them using Mjolnir, which they're pretty excited about. Before they go, though, Rosa reaches out. Thor, you may have to walk alone, but you don't have to be alone. Will you come see us again? Promise, Rosa. And then Pietro says, Wait a minute, I've read the stories. Are you really going to die when you fight the Midgard Serpent? Not every old story is true, Pietro. And he teleports them away, but remember that part. That's going to be very relevant. But speaking of kids, we next see Volstag uh, with Mick and Kevin. They wake up in Asgard and see Volstag hatless waiting for them in a chair across the room. They think he's Santa at first and then ask where their mom is. And sadly, and looking so much more human, like just seeing Volstag's bald head instead of that goofy helm that he wears all the time, like he just looks like a dad and he's honest with them. Children, this is the time for courage. Your mother was killed by an assassin. Thor slew the assassin himself, but too late to save your mother. She cannot care for you any longer, so Thor has brought you here to stay with me for a while until you are old enough to care for yourselves. And I love that he doesn't try to sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to deceive them as far as what happened. He just knows they've suffered a great loss and it's going to be rough. And he's there to help them deal with it. Volstagg is so many things. I mean, he's comic relief. He can be a buffoon. He's also a great warrior. He's enthusiastic and boisterous in a way that's contagious. 
But above all else, I think Volstag at his center, he's a dad. He cares about kids, he cares about innocence, and not protecting innocence exactly, but nurturing it and shepherding it through life. Like, that's what he wants to do. He wants to be the warm heart of Asgard, and that's what he's doing now. And it's a sad and beautiful scene, and of course, no matter how, you know, gently and straightforwardly Volstagg breaks the news, Mick and Kevin immediately, you know, go into denial, and they're incredibly upset, as the narration says, And in one small corner of Asgard, there is not enough sunshine in all the golden realm that can lighten the sorrow in the house of Volstagg. This really brings me back to the most recent issue of Thor as we record this, number 20 of the current volume, as far as Volstagg's feelings about children and just how, how much he cares about kids and how much that affects him when they hurt. If you haven't been reading the current run of Thor by Jason Aaron, illustrated by Russell Dodderman, it's freaking amazing. And this last issue may be the best yet. It's certainly one of the best Volstagg issues I have ever read, and it's actually a pretty decent jumping on point. So... If you like Thor, I would say you owe it to yourself to to try to read this if you can. Later on, Volstagg goes to check on Kevin and Mick again, who are, of course, still reeling from the death of their mother. My children, your mother sleeps peacefully in the gentle embrace of the earth. Her time in the world is done. It is the way of all living things. But your time is just beginning. And no one should think of going anywhere on an empty stomach. So he brings them down to breakfast to this incredibly packed kitchen full of freaking children. Volstagg's wife Gudrun is there, and Hildy, of course our favorite of Volstagg's children, immediately welcomes Mick and Kevin, asking them various questions about things. All the kids are arguing about who's going to get to sit next to the newcomers, and I love the way that Volstagg and Gudrun are just beaming at each other. They're just so proud of their children, of their family. They're so happy to have these newcomers that... Maybe they can help out. I mean, the kids have been through so much, but what a loving, freaking environment. And I love that we have the Supristi's family life, and I love that we have Volstagg's family life. It's a nice little parallel. Like, whether mortal or god, this kind of a dynamic is just so special, you know? I wish that Volstagg had run into Jerry Supristi when he was on Midgard. Oh, God, they would totally get along. Or maybe Jerry Supristi would be like, ah, this guy, he's everything that's wrong with his new New York. Maybe, you know, they're too similar and it's like they would hate each other on sight. But at the very least, Volstagg would love Tina's cooking. Oh, yes. He would be incredibly complimentary. And I feel like from what we've seen of Tina, like she would have a soft spot for him just because of that. Oh, of course. Yeah. She would be struggling to keep up with his appetite, but she would enjoy the challenge. Elizabeth, there are so many charming characters in this run. (laughs) There really are. But we're about to get to something that is pretty dark and and horrifying as Thor heads to the sewers. And as you said, we see kind of a repeat of the same panels as when the Piper led the alligators back to the Morlock tunnels. Back in the Frogthar arc. Yeah, because what the frogs have told Thor most recently here is that the alligators have been dying. Everyone's been dying. There's something happening in the sewers underneath New York, something that smells like death. And so Thor goes to check it out. And he sees just corpses everywhere and a screaming man with feathery wings who's crucified to the wall with three villains gloating nearby. And of course, this is Angel of X-Factor and Blockbuster, Harpoon, and Vertigo from the Marauders. 
And we should probably talk a little bit about what's going on here, because Thor has just stumbled into an X-Men story, or specifically an X-Men, X-Factor, New Mutants crossover called The Mutant Massacre. This was actually the first X-Men crossover ever, before Inferno, before Executioner's Song, before freaking Avengers vs. X-Men, and... And I covered this with Jay Edden in my other podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. If you want to check that out, that's episodes 65 and 66 of that show. But very briefly, so underneath New York, there are a group of mutants called the Morlocks. They're mutants who are outcasts in some way, either because of how they look or because of their social position or whatever, and they live in the tunnels as sort of their own community. Now, in this storyline, a group of villains called the Marauders, who are working for Mr. Sinister and include the famous X-Men villain Sabretooth, they have been charged to go through the Morlock tunnels and just kill everybody. And so the X-Men get involved, and X-Factor gets involved, and New Mutants get involved a little bit, but so does Thor. And as far as what Thor runs into, this scene with Angel, well, Elizabeth, do you want to talk a little bit about how this happened? Sure. In X-Factor, Cyclops has been really on edge. He's been really conflicted about Jean coming back from the dead and his wife supposedly being killed, and he's kind of taken it out on one of their young charges, Rusty Collins, who runs off to the Morlock Tunnels, and he's followed by Artie, a young mutant who can't talk and who everyone loves. So he's down there, and Angel goes after them to try to save Artie, and and instead, he gets captured and crucified by the Marauders. And it is brutal. I mean, Harpoon can create energy harpoons. It's, it's right there in the name, I guess. And he's just stabbed Angel's wings to the wall. And Angel's clearly in agony. And this is actually going to be a big deal. It'll eventually result in Angel losing his wings and almost dying and getting turned into Archangel by Apocalypse. That's all way later, though. For now, what's important is that Angel's in the tunnels looking for Artie and has been damn near killed by these Marauders. And on a lighter aside, do the Marauders have a one-sleeve rule? Because both Blockbuster, Harpoon, and Vertigo only have one sleeve, and it makes me wonder if they are friends with uh, Slagenberg's troll daughter who has the one legging. Oh, right, maybe. Maybe there's some sort of like an inter-realm uh, newsletter talking about what the latest fashion trends of the mid-80s are. <laughs> maybe they're actually trying to conserve, you know, maybe they're like ecologically minded, and they're like, we don't need all this fabric, you know, we can, we can be kind to the earth. As we kill lots of mutants. Hey, everybody's got their own priorities, and uh, <laughs> what's the quote? Do I contradict myself? Then I contradict myself. I am <laughs> legion. I contain multitudes. But Thor vows to avenge the fallen mutants and the marauders attack, promising to kill him. By the power of the storm that is mine to command, I say thee nay! Shakathoom! The living lightning shall give thee pause! So the Marauders flee, and Thor takes the barely alive Angel down. But then he hears the Marauders returning. Methinks that the Marauders have gotten over their first fright and returned to finish the job. Doubtless they will seek to slay Thor as well. But they will learn that evil walks in the same shadows as the good. Come, bold assassins! You shall find the son of Odin waiting for you in the dark! And that's a fantastic moment that leads us to Thor 374, Fires of the Night. And in the Morlock Tunnels, the confrontation continues with Harpoon, Blockbuster, and Vertigo all taking a turn attacking Thor, but he easily fends them off. Enough! Let the lightning and the storm speak with the voice of Thor! Yay, working our title into your dialogue, Thor. I think this is actually the only place in Simonson's run where the title of the show shows up. <laughs> well, Thor, who has taken Angel off the wall, he then notes that he needs medical attention. The Marauders having fled, 
Angel turns to Thor and says, Ah, is Artie safe? Did he make it? I do not understand thy question. I guess he didn't. I can't seem to get anything right anymore. Just leave me alone. Let me die. And Thor debates whether he should leave Angel. He has given his all in battle, and Valhalla would be his reward in my world. Should I deny him his dying wish in this one? But the tunnel is crumbling, and Thor doesn't think it's right to leave him alone in the dark, so he takes Angel with him. At the same time, Sabretooth has joined up with the other marauders, Harpoon Blockbuster and Vertigo, and he taunts Blockbuster about losing to Thor. Blockbuster is super enraged! He's pissed off! Because Sabretooth is really good at being a jerk in addition to gutting people, and Blockbuster goes off to take Thor out. Thor carrying Angel has found Artie finally, but they are attacked by Blockbuster, who breaks Thor's arm. Yeah, he, like, dives through the ceiling above Thor and lands with both feet on Thor's arm, and there's this, like, hideous crunch, and it's brutal. I mean, we've seen Thor have the hell beaten out of him before, but clearly this is different. Yeah, this is, like, the darker, more violent side of more modern comics movies. It's kind of interesting. We've talked several times about how Walter Simonson plays with genre, and now we're going to the dark side here. But the fact that we are is so strange, because, like, usually when Thor gets beaten up, you know, he's a little bruised and battered, but he's never, I don't know, his structural integrity is never breached. This is the first time we've seen his arm point in the wrong direction, for instance. I mean, Hela, you know, clawed the hell out of his face, but we didn't hear about his jaw being broken, so something is obviously up. But as Blockbuster looms over Thor, ready to give him the killing blow, Angel briefly regains consciousness and attacks him, which gives Thor the chance to kill Blockbuster with Mjolnir. Yeah, he just throws Mjolnir right in Blockbuster's face, and you get the impression that he shatters Blockbuster's skull. One of the things I enjoy about Thor, not that I'm a fan of killing, don't get me wrong, but Thor's a character that he's he's always been a warrior, and if he has to kill his opponents, if he has to finish them off to end the conflict, he does so, and here, that's very much the case. Yeah, I mean, he's got a very cut-and-dried, kind of realistic view of war, probably because he's been battling for thousands of centuries. But next, Thor and company run into Cyclops and Jean, who are overjoyed to see Artie and Angel. Yeah, X-Factor has been looking for Angel in the Morlock Tunnels, and two of their members have finally found him. Angel says, Guess I really couldn't carry my own weight this time. You shouldn't have come back for me. I'm not worth it. And Cyclops says, If you thought we walked through fire and blood to find you so we could carry you back to X-Factor and dump you down the garbage disposal, mister, you've got another thing coming. That is so perfect, Cyclops. We were actually speculating because it's Walter Simonson's wife, Louise, who is writing X-Factor at this time. Maybe he consulted with her on the dialogue. Maybe, because just like when Thor crosses over with Power Pack, it really seems to work, it totally works here. I mean, that's something I always enjoyed as a kid, and I enjoy even more now reading these comics more closely, just to see these books I love overlap so seamlessly. And Jean puts Angel in a telekinetic shield, and Thor mentions he recognizes them as X-Men. Cyclops, of course, is awkward. Now, Thor met the X-Men actually way back in X-Men number 9 from 1965, so the Thunderer has a pretty damn good memory here. That was the story where the Avengers and X-Men fought Lucifer, who should have been a really big deal based on how important he was to Professor Xavier, but was never really mentioned again. Well, and also the the fact that X-Factor continued to refer to each other by Cyclops and Jean and all this, they didn't really come up with new code names. Plus, they're pretty visually distinctive, so good for you, Thor. Thor mentions his broken arm, and Cyclops and Jean quickly create a splint. 
So you mentioned that every time Thor is injured in a way that's related to Hela, and we'll find out how this is later, he has to tear up his cape more and more. That's a very strange and specific thing. Yeah, I mean, I love how Cyclops and Jean, like Boy Scouts, they like leap into action. They're like, here's a pipe. Here, rip up your cape. But yeah, Thor had to rip up his cape to shield his face, and now he's ripping up his cape again to splint his arm. Maybe we should wear capes. Apparently they're very useful. It's kind of like having a towel in the Hitchhiker's Guide. Maybe we could do those space blankets. Maybe. I I gotta say, though, real talk, I've worn a Dracula cape a few times for various uh, Halloween and house party costumes, and I don't know how you go back. Like, I just want to wear a cape all the time, basically. It's so much more dramatic. See, I'd be worried that people would, like, step on it or grab it or spill things on it. Uh, There was that scene in The Incredibles where we learned why capes are kind of a bad idea. It's true. Oh, yeah. What price fashion? (laughs) Well, X-Factor knows they need to get Angel to a doctor, but they're loath to leave the dead behind. So Thor offers to give them a Viking funeral. X-Factor also asks Thor not to believe everything that he reads about them, because he's going to hear some things that just aren't true. X-Factor, in fact, has a public persona of being horrible mutant hunters at this point. But Thor, of course, says he knows better than to judge a book by his cover. Later, we see Thor walking through the tunnels to make sure there are no more survivors before he burns it all out, and he's ruminating that Hela must be enjoying this. When, in fact, she appears gloating. I am not a believer in the tragedy of death, Thor. Nor do I take delight in its cruelty. I merely appreciate its necessity. Liar! Well, perhaps I do enjoy it a little. The craftsman takes a certain pride in the skill of his hands, does he not? But far more will I enjoy what is about to happen to you. And Hela explains that she has cursed Thor. She has made his bones as brittle as an old woman's. And she has made sure that he cannot heal any injuries, and he cannot die. So at this rate, with his lifestyle of superheroics, Thor is just going to get more and more beaten up, more and more broken, in more and more pain, and he won't even have the sweet release of death to free him from that. It's going to be the ultimate torture, bit by bit by bit. And the absence of death is eternal life. The god of thunder will live forever, until his every waking desire shall be to die. You will scream out Hela's name in agony. You shall long for death. And perhaps someday, if it pleases me, I may release you. But it may never please me. Thus am I revenged for my humiliation at your hands in hell, Thunderer. Ha, 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 Damn, that's a good villain speech, Hela. This is, as I may say, overkill. I still, though, like, she's clearly just been so affected. She's become so obsessed with getting revenge on Thor after he defeated her so thoroughly and, and revealed her true face to her entire realm. Like, this is all she's been thinking about, and she's just so gleeful. She is clearly obsessed where this has taken over her entire life. Like, doesn't Hela have a job to do? Seriously. So Thor strikes Mjolnir onto the ground of the Morlock Caves, sending lightning and thus fire coruscating through them and incinerating every single body, every piece of furniture, everything, and yelling, Hela! Hela! And as everything is burned within the tunnels, our narration this time is not by Walter Simonson, but by Edgar Allan Poe. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, 
and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. That is from The Mask of the Red Death, and I was surprised to see this narration that's just so different in tone and genre and everything in Thor, but I think it works. I think just these emotions being channeled into fury and then silence, just that contrast makes Poe's comparatively gothic words ring so appropriate. Definitely. Plus, I mean, we had ravens coming back from the dead, a ground Poe the raven, you know, it all goes together. It's all connected. And that's where we leave Thor with his arm in a crudely made sling, standing among not even the dust of the countless dead Morlocks, realizing his curse, realizing the cruelty that people can have toward one another. It's a rough spot to leave the Thunderer right here. Yeah, I mean, this just fills me with a sense of dread. Like, how on earth can Thor go forward? I mean, battle is his life. He could either keep going as he's going and become a broken shell. It reminds me of the end of Death Becomes Her, which still horrifies me whenever I think of it. Or he could try to retire and live a life of peace, which he's already pretty much rejected by giving up the throne of Asgard. Exactly. So hard times ahead for old Goldilocks. But we're not done talking about Asgard, about Thor, and about all his buds, because it is time for this episode's Recognitions of Merit. Elizabeth, I believe you will start off this time with the crack doom Award for the best sound effect. And this is a little different, but it's that ha, 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 ha of Hela's laughter, just because if you look at it, it isn't like ha, 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 ha. There is an exclamation point after each ha, and it's just so bizarre, and it just shows how, like, maniacally unhinged Hela has become, her overweening glee in cursing Thor to such a horrible fate. It is blood chilling. It's like her amusement has become a series of daggers in Thor's body, like her mirth is a weapon, you know? Yes, it it was just super impactful here. Next up, Miles, we have Hell's Haberdashery. Okay, so I was tempted to go with the various horned and winged and otherwise bedecked helmets of the skeletons that Hela drains when she curses Thor. I just, I was just really tickled by the fact that all these skeletons have lost their flesh, their clothes, their whatever, but they still have those awesome hats. Maybe that's how they tell each other apart. Maybe it's like, hey, wings, hey, horns, hey, what's up? Truly. I mean, especially now that they're just skeletons, they need to retain some of their individuality. That's what I'm saying. You can't just use dental records for everything. Although I guess it would be a little easier for skeletons. There's no, like, lips or jaws in the way. True. But I had to go with Justice Peace's helmet. It's like this asymmetrical white and blue metal thing with red accents. Like if Man-at-Arms from He-Man decided that his helmet was just not nearly elaborate enough. It's got this eyepiece and earpiece on one side with a kind of big head pauldron sticking out above them. It's so wonderfully overstated, just like the rest of his look. And it also contrasts quite nicely. It juxtaposes quite nicely with his very no-nonsense clipped personality. Even though this is the 80s, Justice Peace is like a peek into the excesses of the 90s. I mean, he comes from the future, so it makes sense, right? Totally. All right, we'll move on to the Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award. 
And I chose Hopcycle, which is Justice Peace's kind of futuristic motorcycle. Its design is amazing and it's overkill. It looks like it has a traffic signal on the front. Plus, it has remote control rockets and the ability to move through time and be recharged by Thor's hammer. No plutonium needed. Yeah, if you're going to have a time machine, I mean, yes, you could just have it be a police call box. And I've got nothing bad to say about that. But I really do enjoy when... The designer of a time machine just decides, all right, what does this time machine need? More stuff. What does it need after that? More stuff. Yeah, we were saying that if Rob Liefeld had done this, it would be covered in pouches. But instead, it's just like covered in like armor and lights and things. Just random bits of technology, which do, you know, science. And finally, Miles brings us the Most Metal Moment Award. And with this, there was really no contest. I have to go for the very end of the arc as Hela cruelly triumphs over Thor, just as he has, A, seriously suffered from her curse for the first time, but B, has just seen the malice that can exist in the world, just as seeing all these people killed, struck down for no reason. It's it's so intense, and he takes that intensity, he channels it, he channels his frustration and his rage into the lightning and the storm itself to scour clean the Morlock tunnels, granting a Viking funeral to an entire underground civilization as he just howls and screams his fury into the emptiness. It's taking emotion and turning it directly into action, taking anger and sorrow and loss and turning it into just violent catharsis. And that right there is just metal as hell. Metal, it's not always positive, it's not always negative, but it should always be intense. And when you can have this mix of positive and negative emotions that Thoris felt throughout both of these arcs, throughout the Justice Peace Zaniac arc, and throughout the Mutant Massacre hanging out with the Supristes arc, like, Thor's a guy that feels things strongly. We've seen that. We've seen that from the start, even from before Simonson. And so having those feelings just embodied in flames that consume the corpses of the fallen innocent, it's, it's cathartic on every level. What I really like about Walter Simonson's writing is he kind of takes these arcs that perhaps aren't as epic and grand as Surtur and maybe in lesser hands could be a bit hokey and he still brings out this emotion and drama from it. Everything about this run is so wonderful. I know we're starting to wrap up the podcast. We just have a couple episodes left, but <laughs> I know, right? But God, I am so glad that we've we have this chance to just cover this and just share with, you know, whoever's listening how much we love this stuff. Absolutely. And don't forget, we can actually share a physical part of this with you. This is just one last reminder that we are having a contest giving away a Walter Simonson's artist edition of The Return of Beta Ray Bill and that you can enter by donating to the Hero Initiative by July 29th, 2017. And just forward the receipt you get back via email to thelightninginthestorm at gmail.com. So yeah, check it out. It's super rad. And the Hero Initiative is also super rad. It's a great cause. But we'll be back next time as Thor's past rises against him, and steel may endure when flesh dust fail. The Absorbing Man, the return of the Dark Elves, and Thor's new mystical armor. This has been, and shall ever be, The, the Lightning, Lightning and, and the, the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then... Fight on, brave warriors. For valor. For glory. 
for Asgard!